0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we interview Sachin Kajuria and talk about private equity. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me as always is my private equity-backed co-host, Scott Chunch.
1: Thanks, Mindy. Great to be here. And today we're not bigger pockets, we're private pockets.
0: <laughs> I guess that's better than bigger private. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> bigger equity. <laughs> Should we not even say
1: that? That's great. Mindy and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe that financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting.
0: Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself toward your dreams.
1: Love it. Um, Well, before we get into it, we're going to talk about private equity and I know that private equity has, uh, I'm going to use two words, depending on your viewpoint, either a stigma or a mystique attached to it for a lot of folks. And we want to demystify it today and and make it more accessible. Just to introduce the subject, the essence of it is this. Folks are going to raise a pool of capital. Let's call it a billion dollars or three, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're going to use that capital to invest in businesses, right? They're going to buy maybe 10, 15, 20 businesses. And their goal is to grow those businesses, to cash flow them, and then to sell them in order to produce profit. And done well over a five to seven year period, they could double a billion dollars or $300 million or hundreds of millions of dollars and make a lot of profit for the people who invested with them and then earn a percentage of that profit. So they might earn two and 20, 2% of the um, one billion dollars might go to fees that they charge every year to pay their staff to pay their salaries, those types of things. and then again, the twenty the twenty percent of the profits on the incremental billion that they earn. So it's a very lucrative way to make money and uh, um uh, a, a very powerful way to build wealth. It's also good for the limited partners or the investors who invest in the fund because they they have the chance to get better returns than they can get in public markets. Very consistent with the concept of investing in an apartment syndication, for example. someone might uh, A big syndicator might raise a fund and buy multiple apartment co- syndications. That's the sa- same concept as private equity investing. Raise a raise large, large fund, buy multiple businesses, grow them, or attempt to, to, to drive profits, and then return the capital to shareholders after three, five, seven years.
0: Before we bring in Sachin, let's take a quick break. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app/landlord. That's rent.app/landlord. And we're back. Sachin Kajuria, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you today.
3: Thank you so much. I'm very excited too. I love what you guys do, and I'm happy to be on.
0: Sachin Kajuria is a former partner at Apollo, one of the world's largest alternative asset management firms, and is also an investor in funds managed by Blackstone and Carlyle, among other investment firms. And he has 25 years of experience in investments and finance. So I am super excited to talk to you about private equity. What is the private equity model and why should I care about it?
3: It's a great question to start with. So private equity essentially is a means of investing. It's illiquid. It's private. It's not the public markets. And what private equity investment professionals do is they lend to a business or they invest in that business, either taking control or a significant stake. They then seek to improve that business over a period of, say, five to seven years, and then they sell their investment. So they enter they seek to improve, and then they exit. So put like that, it sounds very simple, just like buying a house or an apartment, doing it up, and then selling it. But of course, here we're doing it mainly with operating businesses, rather than just assets, fixed assets. So the reason this is important for you, why you should care, is that number one, private equity is not an esoteric part of Wall Street. It's everywhere. It is in chemicals companies, energy companies, could be the owner of your kids' kindergartens. It could be the owner of the hospitals you go to. Uh, it could be lending to a number of businesses that you use or consume products and services from. Your employer could be owned by private equity.
1: Bigger Pockets is a private equity-backed business. There you go.
3: So there, that, that's that's probably the number one reason you should care. Actually, is that <laughs> Bigger Pockets is a private equity-backed business. Um, But jokes aside, it's absolutely essential that you realize that it is not Wall Street, it is Main Street. And once you realize that private equity firms are invested across the economy, in the same way that you think that big public companies are important, you know, all the big tech names, you know, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, you probably know because of COVID all the big pharma names now, Pfizer, um, you know, and uh, AstraZeneca or so on and so forth. You really need to know the big finance names. And the big finance names, particularly since the financial crisis, where a lot of banks stepped back from lending activities and other activities that private equity has stepped in. The big finance names are the likes of Blackstone, Carlyle, and so on. And so, you know, if you know about Apple and Amazon in the public world, and you don't really know about some of these big private equity firms in the private world, that's something that needs to change. And, you know, where it really hits home is when you look at your own portfolio. If you look at what happened to your own portfolio in 22, it could have been tough, like it was for a lot of people. If you look at the outlook for 23, the outlook is not great. If you look at your own portfolio and you ask yourself, no matter what I'm invested in, am I invested in, uh, you know, real estate? Do I have public stocks? So am I 60-40 as a lot of people used to be in stocks and bonds? Am I being adequately compensated for the risks that I've been taking, and do I really understand those risks? Or should I consider learning more about private markets, illiquid markets where maybe I can afford to lock up some capital for a little while, but at the same time, I won't get the volatility that we're currently seeing in the public markets, and I may earn, if I make the right decision, a higher return per unit of risk. Does that make sense? I know it's a long answer to your question, but does that make sense? There's two parts: what it is and why you should care.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's pervasive. It's a major part of, part of the economy. It's it. And it, every day we're interacting with businesses that uh, are private equity backed, whether we know it or not. Can you explain why it's become so pervasive? How how do these firms make money? How do they raise capital? How do they invest it? Why does private equity have this? Uh, I will. I'll use two words uh, depending on. On who, who the person uh, talking is. It, is, it has a stigma or a mystique associated with it um, in in the world of big finance. Why is it so lucrative?
3: So let's break that down. So number one, you know anything can only really be successful over a sustained period of time if it delivers. You know this is not a one year bubble. This is not a latest fad. It's not driven by crypto that may or may not work out or some other trend that's emerged in the recent past. This is something that's been slowly growing, but people have not really been aware of it. And the reason it's successful is that essentially the people who are doing this activity, the professional investors who run private equity firms and make the deals on behalf of investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and increasingly individuals, they are generally successful at increasing the amount of capital that's come in, so the amount that goes out, that they're returning, is more than they bring in. And that's what's really driven. The success is what's driven this industry. Now, I'll throw out a number. The industry is around $12 trillion in size. So it's not as big as the public markets, but it's getting there. And I think in the next decade, it'll probably exceed $20 trillion. So in our kids' lifetimes, you can look at tens of trillions of dollars of money managed by private markets firms. Just an astronomical number. And when you think that a lot of these funds use leverage on top of the cash that's committed to them when they're making investments, the actual buying power is a multiple or will be a multiple of that tens of trillions of dollars. So that's why it's so big. The reason is it generally works on average. It generally works because it's delivering. It's not pay-per-gain. It's not a hedge fund where The mark goes up. The mark goes down. This is cash in, cash out. Old school. At the end of the day, if you're not getting cash out, there's a problem. You should be getting cash out, and more cash out that you put in, and then you can work out your multiple of cash you put in, and the internal rate of return, the IRR, on how much you know you are generating on annualized basis to get there. And so the 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 reason it's lucrative, as you put it, is going to the second part of your point, is that the incentive for the investment professionals is very different than in passive investing this is highly active investing on a multi trillion dollar scale so in passive investing you invest in a good ETF let's say right they might be charging 10 basis points 50 basis points or maybe a mutual fund a bit more depends on the you know depends on the strategy depends on the firm but they generally don't take a share of the profits here they're taking a cut of the profits you make and that's really why they're doing it they'll have a management fee That's usually the 2% or some variation of 2% of assets under management is the management fee. But they're not really doing it for that, although that can end up being a big number with the kind of numbers we've been talking about. They're really doing it because they'll take some cut of the profit. And let's take something like the industry benchmark, which is 20% of the profits. If you give them a billion dollars, you're a big pension fund, and they double it for you, they've made you a billion dollars without you doing really that much work or any work through the life of the investment. Of course, you've monitored it, you've maintained relationships, you've done all the important fiduciary things, but you haven't worked on the deals. And they've taken your billion, which could be contributed by millions of teachers around the country, and they've made it $2 billion. What they'll do is they'll take 20%. So in other words, setting the management fees aside for a second, that billion of profit that's been generated, they'll keep $200 million and they'll give you $800 million. You might say, well, that's $200 million dollars. Yes, but they've made you 800 million that you wouldn't have made if you did it yourself. And that 200 million, of course, you know, the, the professionals don't take that all themselves, of course, it's, it's, it's given to the people who invest in the funds that they're putting up, right? And so that, that, that 20% that's coming in, that, that is then distributed across all the investors and then of course the investment professionals. So going to the stigma, Look, these are big numbers, first of all, and anything that has very big numbers associated with it generates attention. Whether it's the billionaire in Silicon Valley, or it's a billionaire industrialist, or going back, I guess, to, you know, when we used to have conglomerates, you know, the guys used to run the big conglomerates in the country before they were broken up. Um, any of these big numbers, these big compensations are going to attract attention. and And I think that you know, that can tilt the discussion of the perception in some circles. I think that's part of the uh, mystique stroke stigma. The other part is until recently, most of these firms were private partnerships. And the mystique part comes in because there just wasn't really much talked about, known about, there's no real websites. You know, these were generally private partnerships, even if they're managing large amounts of money. What's really good is that the biggest ones have gone public. And so now they're essentially public corporations. There's an enormous amount of disclosure about who's working in them, what their background is. You can read the 10Ks, the Qs. You can become an investor in the stock. You can probably buy some of the debt if they're issuing some debt. And so that's why I think there, you know, there's been stigma in the past. You're going to some of the numbers involved, some of the mystique around it. And I think that mystique is going down as we learn more about the deals involved in private equity, as we learn more about the people involved in private equity. Because ultimately, this is very much a people business, Scott, right? There's nothing automated about it. It's about the judgment of handfuls of individuals managing billions of dollars, or in some cases, hundreds of billions of dollars. And as a people business, the more that we know about the folks who are doing it, the more we look behind the curtain, the more we'll understand it and hopefully get comfortable with the guys who do it well and and figure out where we should be placing our money to manage our own financial future.
1: Awesome. Let's go into some of the people. Walk us through what a typical deal team looks like and what these private equity professionals do on a day-to-day basis.
3: Well, let's take, in my experience, of course, the the bigger firms tend to be reasonably tight in the way they manage resources. So you won't have you know dozens of people working on a transaction. Typically, you'll have a core team of investment professionals, and those professionals will be call it you know three four maybe five, but in my experience, it's typically like three, four guys. Somebody most senior, someone coming in the middle, and someone running the numbers. And maybe there's a bit of duplication if the deal is particularly complex, or it has, you know, certain angles, there's more geographies involved, or, you know, there's, there's uh, different products involved, or maybe it needs a couple of people to analyze it. But it's generally in the single digits, can we say, in terms of the deal teams. And they're really tied at the hip, they're working together, you know, night and day. And they're kind of powering through uh, to understand a sector, and industry, and then to present investment ideas to an investment committee to get them approved. And in in most firms, I think, particularly in my experience, my opinion, the best firms, the people who are doing the deals then stay with those deals through the life of the deal. So they don't just go away. They're not just consulting on the project and they disappear. They stay with those deals. So it actually, if you think about it, Scott, it becomes a major part of their life. If you own this asset for five, seven years, that's five, seven years of your life that you have to work on this deal and make sure it's a success. You know, you started the deal, you're 25, you're 30, 32, maybe even more, you know, older by the time you've exited. So you have a massive interest in this thing going well because it's not just a big part of your job, it's a big part of your life. Um, That's generally how deal teams are constructed. And on top of that, you'll often have lots of operating experts, slightly older guys, and these women and men are in their 50s or beyond. Maybe they' you know been ex CEOs of industries uh, that are relevant for this business, and these operating advisors will be part of the bench to help on particular inputs. And then of course, you have all the third party advisors, bankers, lawyers, and so on and so forth. But we're talking in the beginning about who's in the core team, who's inside the firm.
1: How many deals would a deal team do or be at work on?
3: Um, it's a really good question. Um, you know in full flow, about to commit capital, it's tough to do more than two, although I've seen some people stretch three. Um, but, you know, in in reality, when 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 you're just about to commit, it's tough to do more than two. And in many cases, it's just one. Uh, but of course, when you're prospecting, you know, you can look at lots of projects at the same time. And so, you, you know, you're kind of all juggling projects at different stages. I mean, the way I would describe it is you know, if you're kind of, you know, um, if you're a doctor or a surgeon and you're analyzing a condition, you know, when you're doing the analysis of the investigation, you can look at lots of patients, but you're only ever going to do one operation at the same time, you know, I hope, at least. You know? <laughs> so um, so it's it's it kind of, it, 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 it filters down to what you're really going to do, uh, and then it'll expand again once you've done it. Once you've done the deal and you've invested the money, of course, you know, you don't just feel like the work's done the work <laughs> the hard work really starts you know you put the money in you haven't made anybody until it's come out and of course you're making this for the investors. and so um, once you've committed to a transaction, you're probably working on a few at the same time again until you exit when again it'll get more intense but that could be years off.
1: okay, so just to recap a couple of points so far tell me if I'm correct here. We've got a we have a fictional private equity firm that's raised billion a billion dollars from pension fund. Uh, There's an investment committee of folks who are the end approvers of investment decisions to buy or sell properties. And there are deal teams that work on individual deals or bring deals to this investment committee. Those deal teams may be as little as three or four people, and they may work on two to three investments at a time, probably just two, though, uh, at at the end of the day. Is that a good summary of where we're at?
3: Yeah, I mean, probably two if they're very live or if they're about to commit maybe even just one. Um, but if you're prospecting, you could go up to looking at four or five, six, you know, transactions at the same time. But of course you want to balance being able to commit depth to a transaction or project with breadth across, you know, being a fully utilized member of the team. And so, you know, we're, we're in the right ballpark depending on what stage of the project's correct.
1: Okay, great. And, and, and this private equity firm is going to buy how many businesses and how, how valuable are those businesses going to be?
3: So here's where, you know, if the answer is, it completely depends on what kind of firm. I mean, if you're raising a billion dollars, you're not gonna put $1 billion, the entire fund into one transaction, right? So you're probably spreading it over at least 10, and maybe 15, maybe even 20 different investments. Although some firms do have a very concentrated strategy and they could say, well, we want at most 10 in one particular sector or you know, at least 100 million per deal. So they're doing less than 10. Um, of equity, um, but you know it, it, it depends. I would say the larger the fund, of course. You know, let's say you have a twenty billion dollar fund. Um, you know, you want to you want to seek to be effective. You don't want to be writing fifty million dollar checks and using up all those resources because it, it probably takes nearly as many resources or you know hours of work to work on a small deal as it does a big deal. So if you have a very big fund. You want to sort of make sure the check makes sense in the context of the resources that you have, um, but I, but I I think as a very very rough rule of thumb, you know uh, I'd be surprised if you're putting more than five to ten percent in any one individual deal. You might start off higher than that and then syndicate down. In other words, sell some of your equity on to your investors who want some extra exposure outside the fund. But you know you want to manage carefully how you construct your portfolio because no matter how right you think you might be. If you're wrong and you put 20% of your fund in one sector and you just, you know, it, it's a wipeout, then, I mean, that's that's catastrophic for the performance of the fund probably.
1: So is it fair to say that, that a private equity firm with a billion dollars in assets might purchase 1.5 to $2 billion in total company value using leverage? And that will be spread across 10 to 15 deals in a typical world. It would obviously vary ac- across these businesses.
3: I would say you'd probably have a bit more leverage on it. So I'd say if you have 1 billion of equity, you probably have more than two billion of purchasing power, maybe even three billion, but I'd say somewhere between two to two point five billion of purchasing power.
1: Awesome. And how many people does this do? These businesses employ? Are these 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 are thousands of employees, most likely, right? That that are employed by the businesses purchased by this fund.
3: It could be tens of employees if it's a people light business, but if it's a people heavy business, of course, it could be hundreds or thousands of employees per company. Now, of course, those are employees of the portfolio company not of the private equity firm. So they're employed by the investment company that the private equity firm will have its funds invest in.
1: Awesome. And so this is the mechanism by which private equity is able to control so much of uh, of American wealth b- businesses uh, and, and American business um, with so few people. Probably many people that are listening to this podcast don't know anyone who works in private equity. Um, yet, Many of the businesses, perhaps half the businesses they've interacted with um, this year, it's been two, three days into the year as this recording. Um, but half the businesses they interact with on a daily basis may be owned or backed by private equity in, in a lot of cases.
3: It, it'll be a, it'll be a good portion, Scott. But I would say rather than control, I would say influence. Because remember, private equity folks are pretty careful to they don't confuse themselves in management. They don't they're not making you know CEO decisions. They're assisting. And guiding or you know, interacting with, working with, partnering with the management teams of these companies. So it's influence across the economy in yeah, in in a great scale. A great
1: scale. So let's walk through that. What what is the influence? What what are the decisions that these private equity professionals make? Uh, I we understand that the, you know, yes, making the investment in the company in the first place, but what are decisions that they would make in the uh operation operating phase in the five to seven year hold period, and then when it's time to sell? How how do they influence um, and, and influence decisions in that in those phases?
3: Well, the manner of influence is typically through the board. So you'd have board representatives, you may control the board if you've bought the company outright, and you'd have non-executive um, presence on the board. You're not an executive. It's very important to understand that. You have to have excellent management and probably the hardest work in these deals is, is done on the shop floor by the management teams, not by the private equity professionals. It's the combination, it's that symbiosis of work between private equity investment professionals and the management teams that gives rise to value being created hopefully over time. Now going into a deal, you'll have an investment thesis. You'll say, I think these things are going to happen to this business in this way or this way. And if we can manage these things happening and also make these things happen, could be an improvement in the product line, could be cost cutting, could be acquisitions, could be better financing, then I think when we exit, we'll have this band of outcomes for our return on exit. And so what they're doing all along is calibrating that investment thesis, helping to execute it, acting as a sounding board for the management, providing network, providing contacts. And it's pretty detailed stuff. I mean, a lot of the work that happens in between the board meetings, you don't just show up to a board meeting once every two months, you know, um, socialize with them, discuss things in the board and then just disappear. A lot of the work is done in working sessions in between the board meetings. And so you're kind of like an extra resource. Does that make sense? For the management team of that company and you're a powerful resource because as a firm you'll have a lot of data coming in from all over the world it's one of the chapters i put in the book called the library there's a huge library of information these firms have on sectors across the economy and you'll be providing that information in the right way and the right conditions in the right form working with the management team to help them make decisions that's how it works you are helping the management team make decisions sometimes of course You may have to step in, you may have to change management, that would be your decision if you did that as a private equity investment professional, as a team, but essentially you're working with them to make decisions and then ultimately then you'll work with them to figure out who the right people to sell to is. Should you go public, because of course you've been private all this time, or should you sell to someone, either another private equity firm or a strategic
4: firm at the end of the period?
1: When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet.
0: Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products.
1: Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table.
0: But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever.
1: So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card.
0: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com.
1: NerdWallet. Finance smarter.
0: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Pretty good episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters. Landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with a digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? RentApp, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app/landlord. That's rent.app landlord. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bp money. That's netsuite.com slash bp money. slash bp money.
1: Awesome. Can you provide an example or two of of uh, successful deals in private equity? Sure. It's it's important. Uh,
3: you know, even if they're successful, that I don't. Uh, go through case studies of real transactions, but I can provide any number of, you know, examples where where um, I sort of, you know,
1: fictionalize. How about an example from your book that- uh, Yeah, sure.
3: Yeah. yeah how about I, one of
1: the I fictionalized think- examples from your book that, that I thought were really excellent?
3: I, I think one of the best examples uh, actually is very relevant today. So today leverage is expensive. Uh, interest rates have gone up. Today, um, it's not easy to raise debt as it was, let's say, a couple of years ago. Or even a year ago. And so what private equity firms did the last time this happened, which was in the financial crisis, was they actually changed tack almost entirely. And a number of them looked at sectors that private equity typically did not invest in. So they were really originating new sectors for investment. And one of the best examples of that was in insurance. So you think of insurance, you're like, insurance? It's kind of maybe a little boring, maybe does that really make sense for private equity to buy and sell that? It's pretty technical, pretty specialized. But what happened in the financial crisis was a number of firms, and after the financial crisis, 2008, 2009 plus, similar conditions to today, although even more acute. They started to look at the sector and realize, well, what if I don't put that much debt in this deal and I'm able to put more money to work by investing in in all equity or mainly in equity? And I buy a business that isn't as directly correlated to the macro economy. So just from the get-go, you're not guessing on when there's a recession or how deep it is or when you're coming out. You're saying, let's just move away from that. Let's decouple to some extent from that and look at a business that has a different cycle than the business cycle. And it took, I think, more than a year um, of learning, of education, of research into the insurance industry And then they started buying these businesses and they realized there's a lot of work to do on the asset side. In other words, the float, the money that we all pay in premiums, and then just sits in these companies and managing how they manage that money, because sometimes the money was not managed that well at insurance companies. And there's a lot to do on the liability side. Sometimes the underwriters of insurance were writing the business to have the biggest book a business possible, because that's how they were compensated. Who's got the biggest book? Who's writing the most insurance? As opposed to, surprise, surprise who's making the most profit from the insurance they're writing, right? And so you can start to think of a lot of pretty straightforward ways that they looked at these businesses, which were, let's say, unloved or unnoticed, and they started to turn things around. So let's trim what's happening on the asset side. Let's trim what's happening on the liability side. Let's improve the cost. Maybe the IT wasn't so advanced, let's offshore some stuff. And then they started making acquisitions. And then before you know it, as we started to emerge from the financial crisis, And the public markets came back and deal activity generally came back. They were able to exit those insurance companies that there were previously, let's say, you know, undiscovered gems, unpolished, or what I like to call smart bargains that they'd purchased at or around, or even below book value. In other words, they didn't pay any real goodwill premium over the book value of the balance sheet, right? And they're able to sell those as a valuable franchise a few years down the line. And they were doing this in really big scale, like, you know, billion dollar plus checks per deal. Um, you know, that that I think is a really interesting example and probably one where, you know, beforehand, I wouldn't have, and maybe a lot of your listeners would not have thought of that. So, wow, is my insurer owned by private equity? Oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? You know, how, how does it impact me? Does it mean I'm getting, you know, better service, worse service, what's going on? That I think is one of the big generational shifts, big shifts we've seen. Um, and now, of course, so many private equity firms are in the insurance industry that they've never in before.
1: So, what are the what are the returns like from private equity? I think that's like the, that that like that's the fundamental reason why we're here discussing this: is it produces returns and perhaps an excess of alternatives um, or ha- has historically. What have they been, and what's your outlook for them for, for returns in private equity in the next couple of years? So you sound you sound fairly bearish.
3: Yeah. So, look, I think here's where you. It's a little bit like saying, "What's the outlook for all equities in the public market?" Or what's the outlook for all stocks? Or you know um, how you know how good are the movies going to be that it released next year? You just can't give a generic answer. You have to be a lot more specific. And if we look at the kind of firms we're talking about in my book, we're talking about the winners—the ones who are continually doing well. And they may have ups and downs. They may make mistakes, of course. But generally speaking, the direction of travel is up, up, up. And generally speaking, they're getting bigger and they're returning more capital than they're pulling in because per fund, they're doing well. Private equity deals tend to have a two handle on the return in terms of IRR at least. So if, for example, you have a private equity fund that's making you 12% a year, you may not be that happy with it you know, particularly when interest rates, you know, where the Fed rates are where they are, if, you know, if if you can put money in treasuries and make 5%, you might be worrying why you're locking up money over five, seven plus years. And, you know, you're only making 12. I think you're really looking in the 20s in terms of IRRs. That's sort of where I start to think that- After fees. Net, 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 net of everything, right? That's what starts to look like a private equity investment to me, a good one. And that's a very powerful filter, because just like when you look at all hedge funds or all stocks or all bonds, there's the winners and the guys in the middle, and there's the folks you know who are not doing as well. And so I think successful private equity should have a track record you know, with this sort of handle. Now, there are very important caveats to that, one of which being the vintage. You could have vintages where everybody was caught out. And so that 12% you got was against 5% for everyone else. You have to look at that and just accept it and, you know, not not sort of, you know, uh, bear, a, bear a grudge on the firms. That why is only 12? And, and you have to look at what everyone else is doing as well. And I personally also look at what liquid markets do, because remember, your money is locked up. So, you know, in a year when the S&P is making 20%, you can look at your private equity firm and say, well, how come my illiquid investments is only making 22? Okay, but what if the next year the S&P loses 20%? And your private equity investment is still accreted by another five, 10 plus. Suddenly you're going to be in love with it, right? You're going to be, oh, this is amazing. And so that's why we're having this conversation, which is look at your portfolio and ask yourself can I lock up a portion of my capital? And if I can really lock that up, and I know it's pretty much locked up, where do I do my homework to figure out which of these strategies makes sense for me, for my own case, my personal circumstances? And should I have exposure to private markets? And you may end up thinking I should put 10, 20, you know, whatever percent of my portfolio in this as I learn more about it and and change the kind of exposures I have.
0: Okay, so I'm a regular person. How can I invest in private equity and private markets? Or do I have to be an accredited investor or even a qualified purchaser?
3: This is a great question. So first of all, if you are a uh, public employee you probably already are invested in private equity or the chances are there's a high chance you are, but you may just not um, follow it so closely or even know about it. So teachers, you know, firefighters, uh, police women and men, uh, a lot of the pension funds that manage you know these public retirement systems, right? They often allocate to private equity. That doesn't mean you're making the decision, of course, but it means that the people who are running the pension funds that your money is going into and millions like you are in private equity already, a lot of them. And the easiest way to find out is just look it up. You know, you look up the website, look up if they've got an allocation to what's called private equity or alternatives. In other words, alternatives to stocks and bonds, that's all it means really. Um, there's a lot of jargon in the industry. Um, you probably already are an investor. I think what you're getting at though is how do I make the decision myself whether to go in or not go in to private equity. Now historically, it was only for institutional investors. Then you started to get these feeder funds from the big wealth managers who would aggregate relatively still large checks, I think, you know 500,000 checks, 250,000 checks, and then aggregate a lot of these and then present a bundle of these checks to a private equity firm and say, look, we've raised 300, 400, 500 million from all of these individual reasonably wealthy folks. And then they would get an allocation. What's happening now is that private equity, is not quite there but it is going retail as the regulation is slowly changing as private equity firms are learning about how to provide products to the retail market. So I wouldn't say it's there just yet. I think the feeder funds and the people who aggregate checks are now lowering the threshold. So it's not like hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's now in the tens of thousands of dollars. But pretty soon, but they're still making the decision for it, you're paying them and then they're going off and making an investment decision. But before too long in the next few years, We will have a situation where I'm not sure you can download it on your smartphone, but you will be able to log in and select this or that or that private equity fund to invest in, just like you can today with public funds. And that's why I think it's a trend you need to get ahead of and learn more about before the choice is upon you and you don't know what to do.
1: Awesome. So so two follow-up questions there. In a practical sense, if I want to invest in the next six months... And I have I'm just an accredited investor, and I'll put 50 grand in. What is the mechanism, literally, by which I can do that? What are my options?
3: If you have that kind of money, you probably are working with someone in some sense to maybe not necessarily manage your money, but at least talk to about money or advise on money. If it's a bank, let's say you have a, you know, you're working with. All
1: people. I do is listen to bigger pockets money.
3: Okay, so in that case, there are a number of firms that do aggregate these checks for you. And um, they're reasonably easy to find. I don't want to plug any of them. Um, But you can easily find these firms that do aggregate checks. Now, depending on where you live and all the regulations and so on, it may or may not be possible for you at that level to put money into them yet. But you should certainly do the research to see if you're at that level where as a accredited professional investor, you're able to do so. You'll probably also find that some of the um, large asset managers do st- have already got funds that you can invest in that do have some elements of private equity in them, but you know I think you know it, it, if it's if it's something as short term as in the next six months, how do I do it? You really need to speak to a, a professional wealth advisor and see what is on the menu that's relevant to me in my jurisdiction, given my portfolio, and you need to really get that proper advice on here's what the menu is. And then frankly, if it was me, you take your time to learn about exactly what it is you're going into. Don't just pick a brand name, don't just you know pick what's on the menu and figure out what the historical returns are, learn more about the product, just like investing in anything new, right? You wouldn't just suddenly go into an apartment block on the other side of the country without doing your homework, right? <laughs> um, in the same way, you shouldn't just say, well, it's, you know, I'm eligible for it. Let me just go for it. So I think, you know, speak to professional uh, advisors, wealth managers, and so on. There are plenty in what I would call the mass affluent bracket who um, have started to talk more about this and you'll see what's on the menu for you. Um, that That is probably the best next step in that timeframe as the industry continues to develop products, which are tailored for someone like yourself uh, directly.
1: One, one, uh, one last thought here. Private equity, If I, going back to our example of a billion-dollar fund and two and 20, right? I raise a billion dollars, I'm going to make $20 million a year. That's the 2% in uh, management fees. Probably m- much of that's going to pay the staff, the deal teams, for example, that run a lot of these deals. And then I'm going to get 20% of the profits on this. Is there a, a uh, incentive risk there in the sense that, uh, that that clearly incentivizes the private equity teams to raise as much capital as possible and drive as much profit as possible? And there's an element of a free spin, if you will, in that, right? I, I raise the capital and I get 2% regardless of what happens, and I get 20% of the profits if there are any. Wouldn't it make sense to just raise as much as I possibly could and, and go for it? And if I lose it? Okay, I'm out. Um, and if I win, then I make hundreds of millions of dollars in that scenario. Is there a little bit of a an, in, an incentive risk there, or or is, does that urge the, the industry to take more risk or behave too aggressively in some in some instances? In your opinion? In my
3: opinion, no, because you'd be out of business, you know, with with one fund, and you'd probably never work again. Um, you know, that's not the way to behave. And so you got to remember that there are, you know, bunches of regulations, exams, licensing, supervision. You know, if, you, if you've if you raised money from other people and you blow it just to get the management fees, you know, I, I think you're looking at all kinds of problems um, and it's obviously just the wrong thing to do. Um, I think what you can find is, of course, you can make mistakes. And what a lot of these terms have are what's called a hurdle rate. So you have to make at least a certain return to be able to get that 20%. So it's not like you can make 1% return and you get 20% of the 1%, you often have to make a, you know, they often say 8% right, is a, is a minimum hurdle that you've got to make. You'll get 20% over the eight. And if you do hit 8%, then there's a catch up. So everything, you know, uh, you get 20% of everything, but of course the terms vary from fund to fund, but I haven't seen that as an issue in the last 25 years. What I've seen as an issue is of course, you know, not every firm gets it right. And what I tried to do in my book is to distill the lessons of how to identify the, you know, in a very common sense, uh, no-nonsense way, what what are the key DNA traits? What are the principles that I've seen common to the firms that continue to be successful through market environments? And they have all, if not most of them, um, you know, at those firms. And so what what I've seen, you know, not work out is when, you know, some firms have just they all hire the same smart people. Let's assume that, you know, they're all well-educated, well-intentioned, smart folks, honest people, all of that. And they're all doing this for the right reasons. And some firms can beat the stock market year in, year out. Um, maybe easier when the stock market's going down. But, you know, uh, some people through the market environment can continue to perform. And some, if you look at a 10-year track record, 20 years even, they can't. You know, what? what's different? What's happening? What's, what do I think are the differentiating factors? That, I think, is where the answer lies to your question, which is there are certain traits in the best firms that allow them, I think, to keep evolving, keep improving, and they have a certain DNA that is why I think they're going to continue to win as they have done in the last 25 years plus.
1: I know I said last thing, but I have another idea. I have another, uh, something else just popped in my head, which is uh, rising interest rates. Um, Interest rates are, are going up. That means that you need to do Better on your deal, you, you, you have even better um, uh, outcomes projected for private equity deals for them to make sense, right because if the interest rate's higher, that's going to reduce my cash flow during the life of the deal if I'm using debt, it's going to hurt my ability to sell uh, on the next in the, the next phase. How, how do you in the public markets that gets priced in immediately, right because all the information's public. the stocks trade on a daily basis. Private equity firms can hold for many years. Uh, for example. So what we've seen in the last half of 2022 uh, and probably heading into 2023 is deal volume collapsing, right? There just haven't been very many deals done. Does that mean that valuations have come down in the private equity space, in, in your opinion, and they just haven't been realized by the firms because they're less liquid, not traded the same way as public stock markets? Do you see that as a headwind heading into next year?
3: So there's is is a few things there. So let's try to unpack each of those points. Um So there's no question that a high interest rate environment is going to hurt a lot of deals if those deals, if those deals were predicated on rates staying very low for the duration of the deal. (laughs) You know, more cash flow required, whether you roll it up in some kind of pick interest, you know, payment in kind or compounding the interest or whether you pay it in cash. Of course, if your interest expense is higher, then that's another use for the cash that could be used either to grow the business or to pay back dividends to the investor's or some combination of the two, or some other corporate purpose. Um, And so, however, I think going back to what I said in the previous point, the better firms are not buying companies where they assume that multiples stay high forever and interest rates stay low forever. They're not doing that. They're saying, let's assume that multiples contract because we're in a bubble or we're in a robust equity environment. Let's assume that rates are only artificially low because of first the financial crisis and then, sadly, covid um, and so I think it really depends on the transactions, but in general, yes, it should be more difficult, um, for everybody when rates are high, uh, if they've raised debt on, uh, on that, on those investments. Um, how is it priced in? Well, of course, most valuations are done quarter to quarter, particularly the big firms. And at least the ones that I've seen without giving anything away, you know, are reflecting differences in environment, you know, pretty accurately. Um, but of course... In a way, it, it is theoretical because, yes, it has gone down this quarter. It may go up next quarter. But until it's sold, uh, you, know, you don't really know. And I've seen plenty of deals, some of the most exciting deals, um, exciting in lots of ways, where the investment was written down because things were just not going very well. But precisely because they were able to hold on to the transaction for seven years, maybe even 10 years, they turned it around and maybe even they made a double at the end of it. That's very hard to do in the public markets, particularly if you have management teams that may have been replaced in that time frame. Here, the deal teams are kind of, it's their deal. It's, your, it's a problem, but it's your problem. It's our problem. So you stick with it, maybe for up to 10 years. And so I think one of the advantages of the model, again, for a portion of your capital that makes sense for you, one of the advantages of the model is you do have these very aligned investments. Uh, professionals aligned in the sense that you've been talking about 2 and 20 is a, is a is an enormous alignment mechanism because you really make money when and only if the investors make money and so you know you don't want to spend 10 years of your life and make nothing right you want everything to be successful of course and you're not being changed as a management team as professional investors every few months or years and so as a result, it's not, it's not Wall Street, it's not investment banking. There's no real hire or fire mentality as you've seen on Wall Street over the decades. Um, you know, Typically, these, these teams are reasonably stable. And so you will see valuations go up and down. But I think the advantage of holding it for longer, I think that's in investor's benefit. Again, for the portion of their capital that they're comfortable locking up. I think one positive thing about higher interest rates, of course, it comes down to private equity firms are very good at pivoting. If you find that there are sectors which are better to invest in with rates are higher, could be a lending business, credit business, could be a bank, could be something else that is benefiting from a higher interest rate environment, they'll pivot to it. And they'll say, great, just like we changed our minds and we did insurance or we had a look and we now do pharma, let's have a look at doing more credit. And one of the most exciting areas for investing today um, is, is actually private credit where unlike a lot of the public credit firms, you see what's happened to high-yield bonds and leveraged loans. I mean, those markets were pummeled in 22. Private credit has actually been pretty attractive for these private equity firms, for these alternative asset management firms, because they're able to pivot and put more resource in that part of the business that can take advantage of those higher rates. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Harder and harder to get good returns on equity investments, but the reason for that is interest rates are going up. Obviously. The obvious move then um, is to put more exposure into debt, um, and these types of private lending can can offer really good yields, ten plus percent in some cases when you factor in the points on origination and and the eight nine ten percent um, interest rates on a lot of the debt. So love it, and I think that's that's a. I bet you we'll see a lot of private equity uh, continue to shift into that space. So, um, Sachin, I, I understand that that the the right answer is to talk to your wealth advisor um, about pr- going into private equity, but. You know, uh, uh, frankly, it feels like there should be at least a place to go- type this into Google to learn about this or to, to figure out private equity investing. How, how, what is there out there that I can begin self-educating without having to just go completely through a hired private advisor? Is there anything available on the internet?
3: So look, it's a really good question. And I think one of the things the industry lacks uh, is great education for everybody in a no-nonsense way about private markets not just private equity but all private markets including um, investing in real estate infrastructure private credit and so on now there are there are you know there are good resources here and there you will learn something from most things that are out there whether it's an academic text or a practitioner's text but often it's not aimed at a broad mass affluent let's say audience um, if it's you know written by a practitioner about themselves and their own life story that's you know what you get. If it's an academic text, it may be more theoretical or maybe a very deep dive into a particular transaction. And so in the same way, you know, it just doesn't really exist for everybody. And that was one of the reasons, um, you know, behind writing 2 and 20 was to try to get everybody to understand what does good look like? What are the criteria of success that I've seen? What you should be looking for when you start to research this industry in depth for you? Um, You know, I think that, you know, we, we gave through some sponsors, you know, folks who bought large quantities of the book, you know, thousands of copies to all the community colleges that we could find across America. I think we've given about 1,500 copies of the book to um, inner city libraries, small community colleges, places that we really want everybody to read this book, borrow it, give it back to the library, borrow it, borrow it, and really try to understand this for all the reasons we talked about. Um, But it really should be, um, you know, it really should be something that more people can learn about in a very easy, digestible, bite-sized way, where people are not trying to sell you something. They're just trying to educate you about your journey to decide for yourself whether it makes sense for you. So I think the industry does that bad. Um, having said that, you know there there are a lot of courses you could do at uh, colleges, um, you know there are websites, the industry body the American Investment Council, you know, actually has a, a decent website. But I think it goes back a little bit back to what you said on um, the mystique and maybe, you know, in some quarters, a uh, certain skepticism about the industry. And not everybody would believe everything they they read or they listen to because they're sort of wondering if someone is trying to sell them something. So I think, I think there is a space for that. And I'm sure it'll come um, because one of the key parts – you know, what will make retail investing in private equity very successful is if everybody knows about it um, and they feel comfortable with what they're being educated about, um, you know, before they're being asked to buy it.
1: Well, it sounds like we need a private pocket, so bigger pockets for private equity um, to break this down and help people educate. Um, but a great place to start, um, I'll plug it for you, is, is a, uh, again, your book, 2 and 20, How the Masters of Private Equity Always Win. Um, Again, I really enjoyed it and thought it was an excellent primer in in, in private equity and really kind of um, validated the learnings that I've had uh, over the last four years working with our partners at McCarthy Capital. Thank you. For those listening, you can find a link to uh, Sachin's book, some of the resources he just mentioned, and the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow374.
3: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I'm very grateful. Thank you.
0: All right. That was Sachin Kajuria, and that was quite the deep dive into private equity. Scott, what did you think of the episode?
1: I I really um, have a lot of respect for Sachin. I think he, he, again, his book, um, Two and 20, I thought was a really fun read and really good introduction into private equity. Um, He's obviously very bullish and a a longtime industry participant, and he has every right to be. Um, I think that there are good and bad things about private equity, but I think it's a really good uh, option for folks who have the means and- and, um, and are willing to put in the homework to to learn about certain funds and certain strategies that they can invest in. It's a great way to potentially earn better returns than you can get in the stock market or even real estate in some cases. If you're willing to accept more risk, accept more risk, and have less liquidity, you're not able to sell or harvest that cash until the private equity firm realizes the returns by selling businesses or
0: or cash flowing the businesses. Scott, you just said something that I want to underline, but I can't because this is an audio format. So I'm going to bring it up again. You said this is a great. Opportunity for people who are willing to do their homework. I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact words used. Do your homework on this. Don't just say, oh, Mindy and Scott had this guy on the show. Therefore, private equity must be the next place I need to put my money in. A, you do not have to be invested in everything. And B, if you are investing in something, you need to understand what you're doing. So if you this was, if this episode intrigued you and you want to learn more about private equity absolutely do your homework go buy this book go do research and learn about this before you throw money into the wind and discover oh i didn't know what i was doing and i just lost it all
1: absolutely yeah this is not something to just you know dump money into and i would say the same thing for 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 other types of investing what where you know one practical application of this is you know if you're considering investing in a syndication or a syndicated fund this they're going to use a very similar concept to what sachin just described here um, actually the syndicator has an even better model than a lot of private equity firms because they'll charge some variation of two and 20, a management fee. Let's say they raise $100 million to invest in apartment complexes. Uh, they'll charge a 2% or $2 million a year to manage the money. They'll get some variation of, two, of 20% of the profits, maybe with a preferred threshold. And in that syndication space, the syndicator will get an acquisition fee. When they buy the asset, they typically get you know, around 1% of the, the, the deal in an acquisition fee, like a, like a real estate broker would that goes into their pockets uh, in many cases. So uh, a very similar model. This model is consistent across a lot of things. And I think it's essential to understand it. If you want to get into the world of alternative investing, essential to understand the, the compensation structure and what these folks are, what the incentives are for the managers of your money. Um, and then to dial into what the specific strategies they're using are to make money.
0: Absolutely. It is essential to understand what you are investing in before you put your money in there. All right, Scott, I want to say that the inappropriate joke at the beginning of the show was brought to you today by our producer, Kaylin Bennett. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for that inspiration.
1: Bigger privates.
0: That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen. Saying, "Take care, polar bear."
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com/slash Bigger Pockets Money.
0: Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, Finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals.